If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. If this is your first Sunday with us or first Sunday back in a while, we're making a bit of a transition this morning. We've been in Matthew 5. We're going to continue to be in Matthew 5. As a matter of fact, we'll be in Matthew 5 through 7 until sometime in July uh, is how, where we're going to be at. And uh, we're making this transition because over the past eight weeks before last week, we uh, went through the Beatitudes and we saw the Beatitudes and, and come to know them as kingdom values. And these values are what drive the follower of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. We culminated that series with this understanding. When you live like Jesus wants you to live, Persecution is something that you should expect to take place in your life. Unfortunately, we don't live that way much anymore. We don't expect persecution to come our way. Jesus actually said, blessed are those who are persecuted. But remember, we have to rem- that it's for the sake of righteousness that persecution takes place. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to make this transition away from kingdom values to, to kingdom living. Because what we've got to understand is that values without application are merely goals that have no teeth to them. So we, we have to have these values that drive what we do. And then those values, what they do in our lives is they put points of action in place for us. Jesus is going to unpack what this means in the rest of kingdom living and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's what we're going to see. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you once again for this time of worship. Thank you for your word. May your spirit grab a hold of our souls and draw us to you. God, may we do more than lean in this morning. May we truly allow your Holy Spirit to capture our souls, to put our feet to pavement, to put our mouths to speaking. God, may we be what you've called us to be. We pray these things in your Son's most holy name. Amen. Have you stopped lately to consider the world that we live in? I'm sure many of you are like me that you're considering the world we live in and you're, you're looking around, right? Uh, you, you have a man over in Russia who invaded another country uh, and, and we're wondering in any moment, is he going to push a nuclear bomb button? And, and knowing that if he does push a nuclear bomb button, that, that other people around the world are going to push their buttons and then before too long, the skies are going to be filled with this and life as we know it may possibly change forever. Then there's the United States of America. Let's not even think about that over there. Let's take a look at us and kind of ask some questions and and kind of peek into where we're at as a country. We are divided over everything. Everything. I remember when Preston was growing up, I told him one day, I said, man, Preston, if I were to come to you and tell you you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, you would look at me and say, well, what do you mean by that? That's how we are as a country right now. Nobody can say anything without division taking place in our world. Marriage is being redefined. Gender is being redefined. Church is pushed to the very slim margins of life. And listen, this isn't for people who are out in the world. This is people who claim to follow Christ. People who claim that, to say that Jesus Christ is the Lord of their life, that the church has been pushed to that margin of what they say is an appropriate level or expectation of what they should be doing for Christ. This is what happens when you remove God from the, every public sector of life. Are you familiar with the Humanist Manifesto? The Humanist Manifesto was written in 1933. It was written in 1933 by a group of liberal theologians who came to call themselves humanists or humanist 
theologians. Right? Think about the time frame. World War I was over. The collapse of the economy was in full swing. This was the Great Depression. Humanity was searching for answers at every place, at every turn. And put that on top of the influence of two people. Two people that really changed the trajectory of life for so many in the world. Do you know who those two people are? One of them is the name of Charles Darwin. The other is the name Karl Marx. Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. Karl Marx wrote The Communist Manifesto. Darwin claimed that man evolved and was not created. Marx says the wealthy have used the economy, even religion, to trap the lower classes of people. And from this viewpoint that the educational elites, a group of theological liberals decided, you know what, we're going to write our own manifesto. So listen to what the opening paragraph reads. The time has come for the widespread recognition of the radical changes in religious beliefs throughout the modern world. The time has passed for mere revision of traditional attitudes. Science and economic change have disrupted the old beliefs. Science, Darwin, economic change, Marx. Religions the world over are under the necessity of coming to terms with the new conditions created by a vastly increased knowledge and experience. The third paragraph reads, Today, man's larger understanding of the universe, his scientific achievements, and deeper appreciation of brotherhood have created a situation which requires a new statement of the means and purposes of religion. There were 15 phrases or statements that they made. We really don't have to go past the first one because listen to what the first statement said. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Really? So the very first statement they make is to say that when you look around, everything has been created or just suddenly appeared. So we remove God from every situation in life. Humanity has created the God they worship. Life has evolved. The concluding paragraph reads this. So stand the thesis of religious humanism. Though we consider the religious forms and ideas of our fathers no longer adequate, the quest for the good life is still the central task for mankind. Man is at last becoming aware that he is alone. He alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams, that he has within him the power for its achievement. He must set intelligence and will to the task. That all sounds great, right? It really does sound great. Work hard and you can get it. The answers are in man. Be kind, do good things, and everything great will happen in life. There's only one problem. Just a few short years after they declared these words, a madman took over in Germany and millions of people died. Wait a minute. I thought the answer was in humans. And here's what happened after that. They realized that they had to rewrite this or add a few things to it. So they wrote the Humanist Manifesto too. And they've also written a third edition of the Humanist Manifesto. It seems to be that they understand that no matter what they do, humans can't get it right. The follower of Christ needs only to open up to the first chapter of the book of Romans to see what God's word declared. I love the book of Romans. This is what God's word declared. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth? For what can be made known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and things that have been made so that we are without excuse. You know what Paul's saying? Just look around. 
Creation points to a creator. For although they knew God, they did not honor God, honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And see, this is what's happened in the world. This is what we see playing out right now. All of the answers, right, are seen in these declarations that people have made. The answer is in human beings. We've just got to be the best version of us. If we can just be the best version of us, then all things will be made well in the earth. How are we to respond as the church? What are we supposed to do at this point? There, there have been a couple of ways we have responded. First, we, we've sought to become like the world. And, I, and I'm just going to make a couple of confessions to you this morning and, and, uh, because I've made this mistake in the past too. I, I made this mistake while leading this church quite a few years ago because I thought if, well, if we could just make ourselves look a little bit more like the world and sound a little bit more like the world, then people will flock in and they'll come in. And, and we believe this lie in the church that if we just play the right music, people will come. Did it work out well for us as a church? No. As a matter of fact, there's a whole industry of the right music, who people who've declared that they believe in God, right? And for a while, and after they've made their money, they conveniently no longer believe in God. This is what's taking place. So we've sought to become like the world. You know, another thing we've done is we've judged the world. See, that, that, that's the other thing we've done is we've looked at the world and we think, well, man, all right, Lord Jesus, just come, come right now, get rid of all of these crazies in this world. And we've doubled down on judgment. And here's why it sickens us when we see same-sex relationships forced upon us on television shows and commercials. It sickens us when our sports leagues, who have never claimed to be religious, support organizations marching in the streets, tearing down buildings, and making threats to law-abiding citizens. It sickens us when the Supreme Court justice tries to make an argument that a baby in uterus feels no pain as an instrument's being used to take away its life. It sickens us when a president of the United States declares that God has given somebody a God-given right to choose their gender. And we should be sickened by those things. But listen, God has never called for the church to judge those things. He's never called for us to take a look at people who are in those positions and condemn them to the pit of hell. And unfortunately, in our sickening of what we see taking place, we've applied that to people and we've just basically written off whole groups of people. So I just, all right, Lord Jesus, come, take them away. A United States Senator this week, literally, out, I mean, hoping out loud that somebody would kill Putin. Why not pray for him? What are we supposed to be doing? The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote these words in 1959 or 1960. That's what the, the book said. Sometime between 1959 and 60, really, it was a series of sermons he was preaching on this very text. And he says, I think it's, very, uh, I think it's true to say that during the last 50 years, the Christian church has paid more direct attention to politics and to socioeconomic questions than in the whole of the previous 100 years. We have had all this talk about social application of Christianity. How has it worked? And if we ask that question, how has the way we've been doing church for the last 50 years worked? 
He says the result is that we are living in a society which is much more immoral than it was 50 years ago, in which vice and law-breaking and lawlessness are rampant. He wrote these words in 1959 or 60. And here's what's happened. That's continued. That slide has continued. We've either become too liberal to take a stand or too judgmental to get involved. So one more thought before we dig into the thus saith the Lord for us this morning. In December of 2018, Ross Dothet, he wrote in an article in the New York Times in the religious section, he wrote the article titled, The Return of Paganism. Listen to what he wrote. Instead of secularization, it makes sense to talk about the fragmentation and personalization of Christianity. To describe America as a nation of Christian heretics, if you will, in which traditional churches have have been supplanted by self-help gurus and spiritual political entrepreneurs. These individuals cobble together pieces of old orthodoxies. They take out the inconvenient bits and pitch them to mass audiences that they that uh, want part of the old-time religion, but not too much unsettling or challenging or aesthetic parts. The result is a nation where Protestant awakenings have given way to the post-Protestant wokeness where Reinhold Niebuhr and Fulton Sheen have, been, have ceded pulpits to Joel Osteen and Oprah Winfrey. And listen, before we get just too crazy about this and think it's one side or the other, I like this last line he says, where the prosperity gospel ruled the right and the social gospel denuded of theological content rules the left. So how does the church respond to all this? When we take a look around our world, how do we respond? Well, what, what, are, what are we supposed to do as Christian parents? What are we supposed to do as Christian working in the workforce or teaching in the school? We're going to school. Does God's word give us a directive? And it does. And let me tell you, this directive is difficult. It's a hard truth to swallow for us today. Because when we put our feet to the ground with what God calls us to do, we can expect persecution to come. So here's the first thing. You are the salt of the earth. So Matthew says, Through Jesus, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Remember, Jesus declares this immediately following the list of kingdom values that we just finished. These verses, what they do, verses 13 through 16, is they serve as kind of a bridge. They serve as a bridge from the values to the actions that we're going to be carrying out. So, so we got the values, now we have the actions, and, and, the, and the bridge is that we're salt and light on the earth. And so as we live this out, we have to understand a couple of things. Before we can apply it to us, what did it mean? First, Jesus was talking to the disciples. He said, you. And in extension, we understand that all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ because of the teaching of the disciples, Jesus would pray in John chapter 17 that we would be one, and so therefore this directly applies to us as well. And he says, you're the salt of the earth. And there's a great deal of speculation about what Jesus meant by salt. And so we've got to understand what's the primary purpose of salt. Today, we think of the primary purpose of salt as as adding flavor to food. Actually, in in Jesus's lifetime, the, the primary purpose of salt was to slow the decaying process of food. There were no refrigeration systems, so if meat was going to be preserved from decay, salt would be the primary means of preserving that decay. And when you think about it, the follower of Christ does not have to work too hard to apply this analogy to us. 
and we take a look around the world and we see what's happening, the decay that's there, and we understand that Jesus is directly declaring, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to preserve decay. That's why I've left you there. I guess that leads to another truth that we should clearly see here. The world is in decay. The changing of the biblical definition of family, the attempt to destroy the relationships that create life, the insatiable desire of humanity to believe that one can merely choose their gender, wars and threats of wars, and and so many other things taking place. It's to this decay that Jesus has called you. It's to this decay that Jesus has called the church. He's called us here to do everything that we can do to prevent or delay the process of that decaying. What Jesus is declaring here is the decay of the world should be slowed by the presence of the church, the Christian family, the follower of Christ. So the church, the family, the follower is not called to take a look at the world and throw our hands up and declare, come on, Lord Jesus, just come. We should be praying and hoping for that. But in the meantime, in the meantime, he's calling for us to engage the world, to engage the world in such a way as that when they bump into us, we're preventing, slowing down that decaying process. Think of the world of what it would be without the influence of the church. Most universities, even the secular elite universities of our day, started off as Christian colleges. Most hospitals were started by Christians. I can remember when we would define Riverside as Riverside Methodist Hospital. We've dropped that term now, and it's just Riverside. Most orphanages around the world are seeking to stop the decay, or Christian orphanages. Ministries here in central Ohio and around the world seeking to impact sex trafficking, trying to stop the decay. The church has been left here to make a difference. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson, he wrote these words, Christians whose lives exhibit these qualities are the qualities of the blessed will have a preserving impact upon a society that if left to itself will rot and deteriorate. Without the influence of the gospel, society will suffer moral decay and become putrid, unfit for consumption of good men and women. He went on to write, sometimes this happens on a national scale. It is said with some justification that the only thing that saved England from a revolution as horrible as the bloody revolution of the French was the evangelical revival under the preaching and teaching of men like John Wesley, George Whitfield during the 18th century. So when we think about being salt, our minds immediately runs to that adding of flavor. We even have verses, right? Uh, but I don't think Jesus had that thought in mind. Why? Because there was already enough salt in the food to preserve it and so you didn't need to add the salt to add the flavor. And, and, but some will point to like verses like Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. Just because it's seasoned with salt does not mean the primary focus was adding flavor. I believe that we can make a strong argument that Paul intended for us to see that speech should prevent decay, like this, 429. Let no corrupting or decaying talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up as fit the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So, so wait a minute. Even Jesus said, if salt loses its saltiness, how shall be saltiness be restored? And this is where maybe, you know, we got to somewhat question the translation a little bit. I'm not going to try to pronounce the Greek word, but, but to mean lose or its savor. However, it can also mean to become a fool. 
to be foolish. You know, salt really does not lose its saltiness at all. You know what takes place with the saltiness? It just becomes defiled by things around it. And once that salt has become so defiled by the things around it, it's no longer good to be used for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. And do you know what Jesus was declaring? Look up the word trampled or underfoot in the New Testament. There are quite a few passages that will come up, but one that I want to share with you is this. Matthew 8, 12, While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That same word, trampled, thrown, is right there. So it's utter foolishness to call yourself a follower of Christ and not seek to have an impact on the world around you, not to be salt. And then he goes on, you are the light of the world. Verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There are many who declare that Jesus is saying with light in a positive way, that, he, that all he was saying was, uh, uh, that he was saying with light in a positive way, what he was saying with salt in a negative way. Salt fights the effects of decay. It's a negative in sense. Uh, light shines into the darkness. It's positive in a sense. But listen, remember, I want you to see that word again. You. You. The disciple of Christ, the follower of Christ, not the church as a whole, but you are the light of the world. There's so much that can be unpacked here. Our Sunday school class, we talked a great deal about this, and Doug did a great job leading that, that discussion about light. And, and, but before we begin to unpack this, the follower of Christ is to, to, to be the light of the world. We have to first understand one truth. In order to be the light, We've got to be connected to the light. And that's Jesus Christ himself. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the, in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the follower of Christ is walking in the light of Christ, who is him. And then that follower becomes light. So what does light do? First thing it does is it exposes darkness. Light exposes darkness. Just so we're clear on the analogy here, light is righteousness, darkness is sin. And so the righteousness of Christ exposes the darkness of the world. Can't we all see through that right now? Can't we see the darkness of the world clearly right now? The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they hated him. Why? Because he exposed the darkness of their heart. And when followers of Christ start living out their faith today, that's where that persecution comes in. Listen, start living out your faith in your family. Start being light in your family. Start challenging the ways of darkness in your family, exposing those things. You know what's going to happen? It's not going to be too long before you're not invited to the family gatherings. It's not going to be too long before you're mocked when you're not there. Start being the light of the world in the workplace. Right? Maybe in the past you've done some things that aren't quite right in the workplace, but now that you've got Christ in your life and you know you're supposed to live a certain way, the next time the opportunity comes up to cut the corner saying, no, I can't do that. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't either. 
persecution will come. Start declaring the gospel to people who are far away from Christ, and, and, and you will see some may respond, but others are going to, they're going to judge and persecute, and that's what's going to happen. So light exposes darkness, and, and when darkness is exposed, it doesn't like it. Matthew 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And remember the words of the Apostle John. Chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be, be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Not only does light expose darkness, here's what else light does. It provides a way out of darkness. Light provides a way out of darkness. Not too long after they started attending church here, Scott and Nancy Crawford, many of you know them, Scott uh, went with me to the Round Lake Men's Retreat. And, and it was really full that year, and so we had to stay over on the lodge side, and the, the retreat actually took place on the campsite. And so after the retreat, we decided, they were doing shuttles, and Scott and I decided, well, we'll just walk, you know, because we're men. We don't, we don't need to sit in a a tractor. So we walked and, and we got on this path there at the camp. If you're familiar with camp, they have a paved path that goes up around, but they also have this little gravel path that's got a canopy of trees and everything over it. And it was pitch black. It was raining that night and clouds were all over. And so, so we get out there and on one side you fall down and, and if, you, you can, if you don't catch a tree, it doesn't stop you on the way down. You're going to end up in the lake. And on the other side, there's a hill going up and we're walking. And so I thought I would just break the silence with Scott and just quiet as we could be. And, and we're just quiet and the only thing you hear is our steps. And it's Scott, yeah, will you hold my hand? No. <laughs> he didn't say anything else to me the rest of that walk. I don't know what the problem was. Man, if it had been today, what we'd have been able to do today is just take out our phones and turn on our handy-dandy Apple flashlight, and it would light the path and provide a way out of darkness. When we find ourselves in a dark situation, what we need is light. What we need is light. When it comes to spiritual darkness, the church has tried many different types of ways to be the light. We've tried. We've tried knowledge. If we can just get people to know, right, just know about Jesus, know about the Bible, know about these things, then, then people will surrender their lives to Christ and, and, and knowledge has equaled light. And if there's enough knowledge, then darkness will go away. We've tried morality. Sometimes I think we believe, believe that it's enough to be salt, right? If we can just be salt and be decent, moral, living people in the world, then, then people will see that and they'll create, will create a thirst in them. I've heard that used, like the, putting the, the beer nuts or the salt nuts out on the bar so you eat more salt and you want, you want you're thirsty. So we've tried that analogy as well. Listen, we've even tried politics. Truth is, these lights have not provided a way out of darkness. They have not. Remember what I read? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. Walt answered a question this morning in our Sunday school class about what's light. You know, and Psalm 119, 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. So what's His Word? What's His Word? 
It's Jesus. Jesus is the word. Jesus is that lamb. Jesus is that light. Jesus was clear. Let your light shine. Let it shine. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a a light and puts it under a basket. You know what happens if you light a candle and you put something on top of that candle? What happens? It goes out. It goes out. As a follower of Christ, we're supposed to have an impact on the world around us, and that impact is both negative and positive, to be salt and to be light. So let me close with three implications for us. And I do apologize ahead of time. This is a little bit of a longer message, but I literally studied for this message for seven weeks. Seven weeks. Here's the first implication. You are included in the you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Being salt and light is not extra credit. Being salt and light is not for the extra special follower of Christ. Did you notice what Jesus declared about the follower of Christ who refused to be salt, who refused to let their light shine? Right? If salt has lost its purpose, it becomes foolish. There are no exceptions to this rule. Just as every value is expected of every follower of Christ, being salt and light in the world is expected of every follower of Christ. It's you. As we leave this place, you have to be salt and light. That, that's what God has called for us to be. Have you ever noticed what we tend to do when we gather in the salt shaker? What's the salt shaker? It's the church. It's not too hard to be around salt. When salt's around salt, it doesn't have to do anything. But when salt leaves the shaker and salt starts rubbing up against things that decay, man, that's where salt's fulfilling its purpose. We gather and we talk about prayer, but we don't pray. I mean, that's one of the things I've thought about. Have you ever thought about that? And I'm just as guilty. When's the last time we'd gather together just to pray? When's the last prayer service you remember having at a church? And we mentioned a prayer service, that we're going to pray. And listen, I'm not pointing fingers because I'm, they're all at me right now. We're going to have a prayer service right now. And, and okay, are we going to have cheeseburgers attached to that prayer service? Is it going to be pizza? You know, because i got to eat. We'll show up for those things, but not to pray. We gather and fill our minds and souls with knowledge of God without giving that knowledge out. Like a sponge that soaks up water that is never squeezed, we've become stagnant. And at times, if we're just honest with ourselves, we stink. Remember, I've told you this. Please understand this. I preach with what I struggle about. Talking to me first. Talking to me. For salt to have an impact, it's got to get out of the shaker. If we don't, man, nothing's going to change. If light's going to have an impact, we've got to light it up. How does our light shine first? It shines by being the presence of Christ through Bible reading, prayer, and the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as we walk in the presence of God, it should become apparent in us, like it was with Moses, that there's a glow about us. There's something different about us. And so that's one way that we're light. But another way that we're light is every now and then we've got to turn the light on to what's going on in the world. Every now and then we've got to be willing to stand up and say, listen, this ain't right. This is what God has called for in his word. And once we do that, we've got to be willing to live with the consequences of saying those things and doing those things. The purpose of light is to shine. It's to shine. And as you draw attention to Christ, we're going to suffer that persecution. Like many of you, I'm fascinated with wars. I am. 
I'm just fascinated with wars and the history of wars. And during World War II, I'm told, you know, this wouldn't work today because of the sophisticated technology that our planes have in dropping bombs. But during World War II, I'm told that entire cities of Europe would go black so that as the, the, the German planes would fly over, they couldn't see them to drop bombs on them. Man, church. Sometimes I think entire churches have turned out their light so that we wouldn't suffer the persecution that the world would bring our way. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And for the sake of the glory of God, we need to live this out. So as we look at the world, it's, it seems to be turning back on God at a breakneck speed. Remember, he's called us here for this very purpose. Second, to impact the world, you must be different from the world. You must be different. I'm not saying we've got to go full on John the Baptist, start wearing camel's hair and eating bugs for lunch. And I'm not saying those things at all. But what I am saying is that we have to understand that when we look at the world and we look at the church, we should be different than the world. I mean, the Holy Spirit should be impacting our way in such a, such a lot, our lives in such a way that people will know, hey, they're nothing like the world. They're nothing like it. The Apostle Paul wrote these words on his own journey of chasing after holiness. Not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own brothers. I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. And when sin shows up in our lives, and it does, here's what we do. We repent of it. We confess it to God, and we let him, allow him to take care of it. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We trust God and the Holy Spirit when temptation pops up. And we know no temptation has seized us. It's not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But we understand this. We understand this. How do we know? How do we know if we are different than the world or if we love the world more than we love Christ? I guess it's what we do with our sin. What do we do with our sin? Because we all sin. Anybody sin this week? We all do. So what do we do with it at that point? Do we just allow it to keep pulling us away, or is it the thing that chases us to the throne of grace? Do we approach God's throne of grace to find mercy and grace in our time of need? The Apostle John would go on to write, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Last implication. The gospel of Christ is the only way to prevent decay and illuminate the way. That's the only way. It's the only way. Uh, maybe we should have just spent all of our time on this point right here. It's the only way. If we were to take a hard, honest look into evangelical Christianity today, we have hedged most of our hopes on things that really don't give true hope. 
Like politics, please understand, I, I'm involved in politics. I have strong convictions for politics. I have strong beliefs, and I do know that as Christians, that is a way that we can be salt and light by stepping into a ballot box and placing our vote. And our vote should go along with our values. Our vote should go along with what God's word declares for us to do. But once we cast that vote, once we do, where's our hope? Is it in an elephant? or a donkey, and those things have let us down every time, every time, every time, and they're going to continue to let us down, every time. So cast our votes, yes, but after that, trust Christ. Fact is, God places leaders in place, right? We might not agree with the leaders that we have, but he places them in place. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Man, whoo, that's a tough one to grasp right there, isn't it? Right? Putin is from God. Our presidents, every one of them, from God. That's what his word says. And those exist that exist have been instituted by God. See, there are times that God places leaders into place to punish his people in hopes of calling them back to what? To holiness. I'm reminded back again to the first chapter of Romans. Paul wanted to go to the Rome. You know why he wanted to go to Rome? He didn't want to go to Rome to talk about the evils of Roman society. He didn't want to go to Rome to talk about how women didn't have the same rights as men. He didn't want to go to Rome to talk about slavery and the issues of slaves in the Roman system. He didn't want to go to Rome to talk about, you know, uh, taxation without representation among people. He didn't want to go to Rome for any of those things. Paul wanted to go to Rome for one reason, because he knew that the only way that you could prevent decay and illuminate the way was to preach the gospel. He said in verses 14 and 15, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Church, what about us? Are we just that eager to run out of this building and preach the gospel to a decaying and dying world? He goes on to say, verses 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, it, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What about us? That's what Christ has left us here for. The only way that we can prevent decay and illuminate the way is to preach Christ. Jesus declared, and when I... I, and when I am lifted up from heaven, will draw all people to myself. I know he's talking about his death upon a cross, but the principle is true for us on the other side of the cross. On the other side of the cross. So are we willing to be salt and light? Or are we just going to lean in again? I'm talking to me first. I'm talking to me first. Church, we're living in a world that's dying and going to hell. That's what he's left us here for. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you give us in Christ. We thank you for the call that you've placed upon us in your word. God, we glorify you for the patience that you give us. 
for the many opportunities that you lay before our feet as followers of yours, God, to do what you've left us here for. We get so sidetracked, God, on so many things, right? So many things, God, that take us off of that primary point, that primary mission that you've left us here for. God, help us to understand our responsibilities to be salt and to be light. Help us to know, God, that we need your spirit to make us different. Help us to know, God, that there is no hope apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And help us to have the conviction to know that the gospel is the only power that saves. We pray these things in your son's most holy name.